This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and down frequency one five two three five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to West Africa. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Asanda Matawanyane, Wesana Matabula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. The UN investigates new allegations that its peacekeepers sexually abused four underage girls in the capital of the Central African Republic. African countries agree to concentrate more budgets for the development of fish farming to improve food insecurity. But first, the news with Asanda Mataunyan. Good evening. Two masked individuals have opened fire at a hotel close to the Giza pyramids in Egypt, causing some damage to the hotel's facade, according to Egyptian security officials. No casualties have been reported in the incident at the Three Pyramids Hotel. Egypt's Coptic Orthodox Christians are celebrating Christmas today in predominantly Muslim Egypt. The Egyptian government has been battling an insurgency based in northern Sinai with attacks multiplying after the military overthrew Islamic President Mohamed Morsi in 2013, striking the mainland numerous times in recent months. Meanwhile, Egypt's Coptic Orthodox Christians have flocked to churches to attend masses on Christmas Eve across the predominantly Muslim country as the government continues to battle a burgeoning Islamic insurgency. Police have painstakingly searched more than 300 churches in the capital, Cairo, alone for explosive devices, according to police spokesperson Kamal Halawa. Roadblocks were set up before churches nationwide. Militant attacks have multiplied after the military overthrew Islamic President Mohamed Morsi in 2013. Financial institution Standard Bank says it will allow or it will follow due process as it deals with the disciplinary action against its South African executive, Chris Hart. Hart has been accused of racism following a tweet he posted recently. Although he has apologized, the bank has taken disciplinary action against him. But the leading ANC party's Youth League, which is picketing outside the bank in Johannesburg, wants him fired. Head of the bank in Gauteng, South Africa, Josh Zwani. Standard Bank has distanced itself from the offending tweets and initiated immediate disciplinary action against the staff member, uh, which, is, which is, has, been, has been out there. We believe in the laws of South Africa, and as such, we will follow the procedures which are laid down by the Labor Relations Act, which require a due process and substantive fairness on the part of the staff member. Warnings of widespread starvation are growing as pro-government forces besiege an opposition-held town in Syria and winter bites, darkening the already bleak outlook for peace talks scheduled at the United Nations this month. The blockade of Badaya near the border with Lebanon has become a focal issue for Syrian opposition leaders. They say they will not take part in talks with the government until it and other sieges are lifted. 
At least 10 people have died of starvation in Madaya in the past six weeks, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. Aid blockades have been a common feature of the nearly five-year-old war that has killed an estimated 250,000 people. Finally, the city of Cape Town in South Africa has appealed to bathers to only swim at beaches where lifeguards are on duty. This follows the alleged drowning of an 11-year-old boy at Clifton First Beach on New Year's Day. The city's director for sport, recreation and amenities, Gert Bam. We never have lifeguards um, on uh, stationed at first, second and third beach. We've always only had lifeguards stationed at uh, Clifton Fourth Beach. And hence, we always um, advise people to only swim at Clifton Fourth Beach. Those other beaches are extremely dangerous. We don't station lifeguards at spots where it's dangerous to swim because that would invite people uh, to swim under false pretenses. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. Thank you very much, Asanda, for the news update. Your time is 17.05 Central African time. The United Nations says it's investigating new allegations that UN peacekeepers sexually abused four underage girls in the capital of the Central African Republic, Bangui. The new allegations follow a series of sexual abuse allegations against UN peacekeepers last year in the same country, which has suffered years of sectarian violence. Last month, an independent panel's report sharply criticized the UN response to the allegations, saying it failed to properly vet peacekeepers for past abuses and needed to do more to protect children. Meanwhile, Amnesty International has welcomed the decision by the UN to conduct investigations into the allegations. Stephen Cockburn, Amnesty International's Deputy Regional Director for West and Central Africa, says although nations are responsible for holding their own troops accountable in such cases, this never happens, except sometimes within military disciplinary procedures. It's actually very rare, and it's one of the big problems. One of the big problems we have in ensuring that peacekeepers do not exploit or abuse the people they're supposed to protect is this lack of accountability. So, you know, for example, there are a number of cases, for example, Indian troops who had committed crimes in the DRC were under military sanction back in India but not prosecuted under criminal charges. And what happens far too often is that when investigations are done, the individual soldiers who are accused of being responsible are taken back to their country. Perhaps they will be given some military discipline, but they won't be put up in court. And that, what that means is there is a lack of justice for the victims, and it also means that there is a, a sort of lack of deterrence for future events. So in terms of preventing this type of abuse happening before, we need action from the United Nations to fully investigate these cases and to provide oversight in these cases. We also need the countries providing troops to be much more effective and, and assertive in, in prosecuting the soldiers that they provide to these missions. And those countries that don't act on allegations of sexual misconduct by their troops, shouldn't they also be held accountable? Sure, and so what Amnesty has been calling for is that countries that do not take effective action in holding their soldiers accountable should be named and shamed, and they should be vetted for future peacekeeping missions. So the UN has a policy of, of zero tolerance against sexual abuse. There needs to be much stronger mechanisms to make sure that the UN does their bit, but also the governments comply with the, the procedures that they're supposed to follow and don't have a free reign to, to hide or 
you know, to brush away the crimes that may be committed by, by their sort. Now, in these cases, what is actually meant by sexual abuse? Is it rape or is it even the sexual exploitation of women by these peacekeepers? You know, what is called transactional sex, where sex is traded for basic needs, including food and medication. What is actually meant by sexual abuse? It depends. And we don't actually know. We don't have the details of the cases that have been investigated at the moment. So these are, are four young girls, four underage girls that have been exploited by peacekeepers, but we don't have the specific details on, on, on these cases to be able to know. And often it's a, it's a range of things. We, for example, we, we documented a case of a 12-year-old girl who was raped by a peacekeeper back in August last year. And in 2014, there was a case of a number of boys who had been offered food and water for sex. And these are vulnerable boys who are living in camps for displaced people. So there's a, you know, there's a range of different types of exploitation and abuse that have been documented. We're not aware of what the exact allegations are in this specific case. But of course, any of these types of actions are illegal and need to be investigated. Now, last year, a senior UN aid worker was suspended for disclosing to prosecutors an internal report on the sexual abuse of children by French peacekeeping troops in the Central African Republic. Anders Kompas, I believe, was his name. He was said to have passed confidential documents to authorities because of the United Nations failure to stop the abuse of children in the Central African Republic. So what about these whistleblowers who wish to stop the abuse and protect vulnerable civilians? Won't this sort of victimization make them afraid? How can they be protected? Well, the UN appointed a panel of experts to do an independent report on this scandal. You know, the fact that so many boys had been uh, abused and that it had been held, it had been kind of hidden away or not been reported on for such a long time, and also the suspension of Mr. Compass. That report showed that the UN had been far too slow, didn't take these allegations seriously, and it needed a whistleblower to be able to get that information out. So I actually would hope that this would encourage the others to expose that abuse. And, and more importantly than that, the, the system should be set up so that, that whistleblowing is not necessary. So if there's a much more transparent and open and effective system within the United Nations, we shouldn't need whistleblowers to expose these things. It should be being dealt with in a normal procedure. And finally, in your opinion, what do you think would be an effective way to actually stop this behavior from happening, that it shouldn't happen at all, you know, by peacekeepers? What should happen? Should they be monitored wherever they are? So there was a number of quite important recommendations and useful recommendations that the panel of experts made on this issue back in December, and, and they include a range of things that, you know, there's no one single measure that will absolutely prevent this, but there are a number of measures you can take to reduce this and make this less likely, punish people who have committed it, and also support victims, very important, support victims who have suffered from it. And th- those measures range from, first of all, vetting the troops that uh, are deployed in the first place, so making sure there are no troops that may have committed similar crimes before, all come from um, contingents that have not taken effective measures to prevent sexual abuse in other conflict zones uh, before. Um, there's also, of course, training is important. There is also the involvement and the participation of women in, in peacekeeping forces and making sure that there is, uh, there is mixed forces that are deployed. There is the need for specific forces to investigate you know, specific mechanisms and units to investigate sexual abuse and exploitation. Stephen Cockburn is Amnesty International's Deputy Regional Director for West and Central Africa, speaking to Jose Jotingake on the line from London.
South Africa's ruling party, the African National Congress, will on Saturday mark its 104th anniversary in the country north in the country's northwest province. The celebrations come on the backdrop of the shock firing of Finance Minister Tlantlanene by President Jacob Zuma that cost the economy millions of dollars. Since the country has been in an uproar demanding that Zuma be fired, the celebrations have also come as the country prepares to hold the local and government local government elections rather which analysts have said might prove to be a challenge for the party. More from political analyst Dr. Somato Tafigen. It is a very important moment because, one, it is going to demonstrate whether ANC is a united force, mm-hmm. whether it is united with its tripartite alliance members, COSATU and the South African Communist Party. And it is also going to be a test case for the president who was forced to retract his appointment recently, who has been limping from one crisis to the other, as Mm -hmm. whether the crowd itself will show support and be disciplined when he delivers his statement. But more importantly, this is a platform for ANC to explain what its achievements are ahead of the local government elections and, more importantly, what it plans to do in order to challenge its own political opponents who are looking particularly for the metro's Mm. win from the ANC. Mm. Now, on the backdrop of the celebrations that are said to take place, of course, we know that there have been numerous calls for President Jacob Zuma to be fired as president. We know we saw a campaign, hashtag Zuma must fall. And, of course, uh, this um, was uh, aggravated by the firing of the finance minister, Antlantlanene. Do you think that um, this has placed uh, the party, then, in a difficult position in terms of what to do with their leader? And does the ANC even have the powers uh, to move him from his position? At this stage, because you have elections ahead, they Mm. would rather try to control that and show a united face. Mm. But immediately after elections, particularly if elections do not go well, you are more likely going to have a challenge to Zuma's presidency, particularly when he has become a lame duck. And uh, in the following year, there will be a new president of the ANC. Mm. All those people will be raising questions around the two centers of power once a new president is elected. Now, we know for decades that the ANC has enjoyed a tremendous support from citizens of the country, but of late, we've seen a lot of people who are just not happy, you know, with the way that things are happening, particularly with the electricity issues and just some of the issues that the country's been grappling with. Do you think that this then places the ANC in a vulnerable position when it comes to these local elections? And is there reason for the party to worry? The ANC has to be very much worried because in most of the metros, it didn't do well from Cape Town yeah. to the metros in Gauteng up to the one in Nelson Mandela Bay where it failed to reach 50%. Mm. That itself has to get ANC worried. And besides, that the leader of the ANC has become a topical issue for all negative reasons doesn't help because he will become the face of the campaign itself. Mm. And the opposition also, it depends on how strong the opposition is to take advantage of ANC's vulnerabilities. Mm. And in your view, Doctor, what do you think that the ANC would have to do to sort of reclaim its uh, former glory, so to speak? ANC would have to campaign very hard and make sure that its tripartite alliance membership is not showing signs of crack.
mm. ahead of elections, but also to come up with a clear message, especially on the issue of corruption, service delivery. And it doesn't help that the minister now who has to preside over this portfolio is the very person who was retracted from the position of being finance minister mm. and who had been a mayor with not quite a glorious record as such. But ANC will have to pull all the stops, I mean, do everything to make sure that it fights back, mm. reclaim. And we have seen ANC doing that sometimes very close to elections when we thought it was on the back foot. That is Dr. Samadu Dafigini, South African political analyst, chatting to Zikona Miso. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1716 Central African Time, right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to Africa Digest with Ms. Pumela Lezondi. The recent mass execution in Saudi Arabia continues to spur reactions in the region and the United Nations in New York. On Saturday, the kingdom announced that it had executed 47 prisoners, and that includes a prominent Shia cleric on terrorism-related charges. The incident sparked violent protests in Iran and has led to a break in diplomatic relations between the two countries. Here's Diane Penn. The announcement of the beheading of Sheikh al-Nimra set off demonstrations in Iran where Shia Muslims are the majority. Protesters stormed Saudi diplomatic facilities there, such as the embassy in the capital Tehran, which was set on fire. Saudi Arabia has since severed diplomatic ties with Iran. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon spoke by phone with the foreign ministers of both countries, urging them to work to de-escalate tensions. Stefan Dujaric is the spokesperson for the UN Secretary General. The Secretary General urged both foreign ministers to avoid any action that could further exacerbate the situation between the two countries and in the region as a whole. He stressed the importance of continued constructive engagement by both countries in the interest of the region and beyond. Both Saudi Arabia and Iran are involved in international talks to resolve the ongoing conflict in Syria. Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the UN, Abdullah bin Yahya al-Mualimi, was asked if the diplomatic rift will have an impact on peace efforts in Syria or Yemen, where a Saudi-led coalition has been backing government forces in fighting against Shia rebels known as Houthis. From our side, it should have no effect because we will continue to... Uh, work very hard towards supporting the peace uh, efforts in Syria, in Yemen, wherever there uh, might be a need for that. Uh, How is that going to affect the behavior of Iran? We do not know. You you would need to to ask the the Iranians on, on that. He was also asked what would it take to resume diplomatic ties with Iran. Very simple. Iran to cease and desist from interfering in the internal affairs of other countries, including our own. If they do so, we will of course have normal relations with Iran. Iran is a sisterly country. We share history with Iran, we share religion with Iran, we share geography, and we share a common future. We are both uh, countries in the region and and we have to work together and we have to find a way together. And of course, we uh, have nothing but the greatest respect for the Iranian people and for their great history and civilization and and culture uh, and so forth. So we we are not 
natural born enemies with, with Iran. It is only the behavior of the Iranian government that continues to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, particularly our Arab countries, including our own, uh, that is causing us to, to take this position. The UN envoy for Syria, Stefan de Mistura, has been in Riyadh to meet with Saudi authorities to discuss the Syria talks slated for Geneva later this month, at which both Saudi Arabia and Iran are expected to be present. Diane Penn, United Nations. Counting more than 3,000 deaths, the International Organization for Migration says 2015 was the deadliest year for migrants and refugees crossing to the Mediterranean. IOM notes that migration has been the major theme of last year, with record numbers of refugees and migrants arriving in Europe, fleeing from conflict and acute poverty. It maintains that a big challenge for the coming years would be for the international community to work diligently towards changing from the current toxic migration narrative to one that is more historically accurate, namely that migration has been overwhelmingly positive. To reflect more on this issue, he has a spokesperson for migration agency Itai Vereri. So 2015, as we have seen through the post that we've just issued, shows that over 3,771 migrants died in the Mediterranean alone. So these are people who are trying to get to Europe from Africa, mostly. And since we started getting records like this, I'll say maybe a few years ago, this is by far the deadliest year. To give you a comparison, in 2014, 3,279 deaths were recorded in the Mediterranean. And when we say the Mediterranean, because it is probably the most dangerous route for migrants, globally we're also looking at uh, an estimated 5,350 migrants who died trying to migrate during 2015. So you can tell even from that figure that the Mediterranean is the largest percentage of people who, who lose their lives trying to migrate. Why has the number of people who died at the Mediterranean particularly increased in 2015? What are the key reasons? The main reason for the increase in these fatalities, sadly, is because of also the increase in the number of migrants who are trying to get to Europe. We also saw a record number of migrants coming from the Middle East, coming from Africa, and for the first time ever we topped uh, one million. Again, if you compare it to 2014, only 219,000 migrants made it to Europe. So that's a huge, huge jump. It's almost five times the amount that we saw um, uh, in 2014. The main reason really also for why the Mediterranean has been so deadly for migrants is that with the situation in Libya still very uncertain, there's no real strong government there. It means that more and more boats, very flimsy vessels that are not seaworthy, are being launched off Libyan shores. So that means that the likelihood of any boat that's being launched towards Europe capsizing and people losing their lives is increased. Whereas before, say, for example, during Muammar Gaddafi's time when there was a coherent government and proper patrols, we did not talk of this kind of numbers and certainly did not talk of this kind of death of migrants. Now, Itai, migration was really a dominant theme throughout 2015, especially with the Europe refugee and migrant crisis. Let's reflect on the key moments around this issue. Well, the main issue, I suppose, was that Europe was really forced to act very quickly because at some point they realized that the numbers were really 
going beyond what they were expecting. I presume they probably expected to see something like in the region of what they saw in 2014, you know, somewhere around 200,000, 300,000 at most. But by the middle of the year, when we were already racing towards half a million, that's when you started seeing a lot of these meetings being held. But more so after the really, really terrible tragedy in April when up to 850 migrants died in one incident, you started seeing a lot of more approach from the European Union to try and deal with this. Unfortunately, it still took quite a while, you know, to, for example, improve the search and rescue capacities. And also it took a while for them to come around and actually start talking directly with the African Union, for example. You know, the Malta summit only happened in November, whereas we had seen all this happening throughout the year. This time, uh, we are talking now in January, there's still a lot that needs to be done because some of the issues that came up last year were still not resolved in terms of how to deal with these numbers coming to Europe, how to share the the numbers across the European Union, because right now the majority are going to Germany. Yes, we've just touched on my next question because I was just about to mention that even with the reported image of the lifeless Syrian toddler who had drowned at sea, a key moment that shook the global community, the situation of people on the move along the world's most dangerous waters never really improved. The situation never really improved. I mean, the expectation was that when winter set in, that the numbers will certainly drop. And they did drop, I mean, compared to, say, the highs of uh, the summer, but there was still far much more than we've ever seen in other years. Hence, we ended up reaching uh, over a million. So really, the main issue going into 2016 is trying to resolve the reasons why people are moving in such large numbers. The conflict in Syria, the conflict in other parts of the Middle East, dealing with acute poverty that people are trying to escape from. Part of the solution the EU believes is setting up this trust fund, which uh, I think will probably go up to at least 3 billion euros to try and help various countries, especially the source countries in Africa, for example, to set up facilities that uh, give other people opportunities to stay where they are. But that will take a long time to really bear any fruit. So we're going to continue seeing people travel in these numbers. Itaivere is the spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration, speaking to Jane Rabotada. 1726 Central African Time is still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. On Twitter, you can find us on Channel Africa 1, Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. The government of the Democratic Republic of Congo has said it's determined to improve conditions of education in the country's universities and higher education areas. As Jean-Noël Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa, most buildings of education were made with a capacity of hosting a certain number of learners but are now overcrowded. That's indeed what happens in most of universities and higher education schools here where buildings and mostly old ones that were designed to host a reduced number of learners have become overcrowded. A lecturing room supposed to host a hundred students is overcrowded by about a thousand learners and others who are not lucky to find a space inside can listen to the lecturer through the windows while those who have it very difficult to access remain just aside and can't attend the course. This is a common situation in universities and higher education areas all over the country. The Congolese government has said it's determined to bring about a solution and improve conditions of education in this country. 
Professor Kasengedia is from the Ministry of University and Higher Education. We'll see what is the priority task that we'll do. I can consider the problem of infrastructure. If you see the building that we have here, it was uh, done for receiving uh, 3,000 uh, persons. But now, if you see the number of students that we have here at ESA, we are more than 7,000. This means that we have to do our best to build uh, a new building and uh, we will try to find somebody who can make for us a design and to tell us uh, how much it will cost. Of course, afterwards we will we'll see how to find money. It will be internal source. Is that uh, uh, we, are, we have got a partnership with uh, World Bank. With World Bank we must uh, do the rehabilitation of uh, laboratories because we would like that in the future our students to have uh, enough equipment that they need uh, for the practice. Another problem students face in the learning areas here in the Democratic Republic of Congo is the electricity shortage. Power can be cut off any time while the course is underway and this makes it very difficult for the lecture to continue the way it's supposed to. The DRC produces electricity that can feed a significant number of people and experts believe the country's Inga project will even feed several African countries in electricity, but people's access rate is still very low and the situation hits most of universities and higher education areas. The most vulnerable are those in rural territories. Once more, Professor Kasengedia explains. I know the subject very important is to see how that we can uh, have electricity in a rural medium. You know that uh, if you see the electrical uh, rate of the population in DR Congo is uh, 9% and I can say that 9% is not enough for a country like us which has a big potentialities. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa. Kinshasa. It's time for news headlines. Here's Asanda Mazaonyane. Good afternoon. Two masked individuals opened fire at a hotel close to the Giza pyramids in Egypt. Egypt's Coptic Orthodox Christians flocked to churches to attend masses on their Christmas Eve, and financial institution Standard Bank says it will follow due process as it deals with the disciplinary action against its South African executive Chris Hart. Hart has been accused of racism. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa. Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views, and great African entertainment. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. 
1731 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. You can send us emails on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spomela Lezondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Research has linked sitting for long periods of time in the workplace with a number of health concerns, and these include obesity and metabolic syndrome. Too much sitting also seems to increase the risk of death from cardiovascular diseases and cancer. However, some health professionals in South Africa say standing and walking about in the office could decrease the risk of physical health issues drastically, as well as improve the mental and intellectual state of the workforce. Dr. Robert Stelgado is a corrective care chiropractor and lifestyle coach. There's been a lot of research coming out recently linking the amount that you sit to the development of chronic illnesses. So what they found is that people that sit extensively during the day have a, a greater chance of developing chronic illness like heart disease, diabetes, things like low back pain, headaches. You know, some researchers are calling sitting the new smoking, you know, because there's so much evidence coming out on how it can affect your health. And it seems to be a couple of reasons why it could be, but it's more the lack of movement that's the problem. A lot of us are very deficient in our quotient of movement during the day. And because the body's not moving around as it was designed to, there are certain processes that aren't taking place and then that's leading to chronic illness over time. Now, you're one of the people who believe that standing and walking desks could be part of the solution and that they are a worthy investment. Tell us more. Well, you know, I think the first thing to make a point of is that standing all day is not going to be good either. The key is to vary your movement and your position. So what the standing desk can do is it can allow you to move from a sitting position and then to a standing position so you alternate, so you're not in one position for too long. So, you know, especially if we can get to a situation where the desk can go from standing to sitting and you can change it around, that will put your body in a different alignment, it will cause different muscles to contract and it will kickstart some of those processes. The general recommendation is with 30 minutes of work, we should be sitting for about 20 minutes, standing for about 8 minutes and moving around for 2 minutes, which may sound strange, but with a bit of an equipment change, and a bit of a mindset change, it actually can be done fairly easily and it increases efficiency at work. You will get more done and you will feel more energized at the end of the day. I understand it's also important, doctor, to move around the workplace to exercise the spine. Elaborate further. It's a prerequisite for spinal health, nervous system health, brain health. And that's, I think, probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in the general public is we think that exercise is maybe a treatment for, you know, being overweight or something like that. It's not. It's movement is a raw material that your body needs in order to work. And uh, if you're not moving consistently during the day, your body and your mind become dangerously deficient in one of its most important nutrients, which is movement. The human body works like one of these kinetic watches. You know, when you move the watch, it charges. It's the same with the nervous system. When you move the body, but especially the spine, it charges the brain. And then the brain, in turn, then runs all the processes of the body. Proper alignment, proper movement of the spine is a prerequisite to health. And uh, it's why chiropractic 
focuses on that because of the, the effect it has on overall health. Is it possible to be incredibly fit yet be at risk of premature death and disability due to inactivity? Yes, it is. I mean, it, it depends. You know, your health is determined by three lifestyle factors, and that's how you're eating, how you're moving, and how you're thinking. So all three of those factors need to be looked at. So, for instance, if you're exercising, you know, very, very regularly and you find that you're fit, but you're eating very poorly and you're under high amounts of stress, you still are going to be at risk. We really have to look at our lifestyles holistically at how we're eating, how we're moving, and how we're thinking. And in reality, one is not more important than the other. They're all equally important. So physical fitness is absolutely exceptionally important, but so is what you're eating and so is what you're thinking. Some individuals complain about a lack of time to take care of their health. Your advice to such people? I understand that. I think for the vast majority of people, it's not a lack of time, it's a lack of prioritizing. And, you know, unfortunately, if you don't prioritize things to keep you well, you're forced to make time to be sick. You know, there are are people that run multiple corporations and still find time to exercise every day. You know, we all have the same 24 hours. So it's about, I think, assessing your lifestyle, prioritizing health above all else, which I think it should be, and then modifying your day. You know, maybe it is waking up 10 minutes earlier. Maybe it is taking a slightly longer lunch whatever it is, but I think everybody does have the time. It's more about prioritizing it. And the benefits, you know, way outweigh any effort because everything works better when you're healthy. That is Dr. Robert Stilgado, Hair Corrective Care Chiropractor and Lifestyle Coach, talking to Elizabeth Lidecha. African countries have agreed to concentrate more budgets for the development of fish farming as a means to improve food security and generating employment. Africa regrets that even though it owns large expense of natural resources in 48 countries and the continent's five island nations, it contributes less than 5% of world fish production and imports most of the fish it consumes from China. There are also complaints that Chinese fish farmers are occupying the continent's waters Moki Kinzaga sent us this report from Yaounde. Thirty-two-year-old former fisherman Biso Frederick now sells sandwiches in the Cameroonian town of Limbe on the West African Atlantic coast. He says he was forced to abandon his job when Chinese fishermen arrived in the locality three years ago. Au Cameroun en général, c'est un problème parce que ils nous envahissent, on n'a même plus accès. Par exemple, ils sont en train de pêcher. He says they have lost their jobs to Chinese fishermen who have occupied all fishing areas. He says they are very worried that the government of Cameroon has allowed foreigners to do little jobs they should have been doing. Que des étrangers viennent travailler chez nous alors qu'il y a des trucs que nous-mêmes nous pouvions faire vraiment, c'est que ça ne peut pas aller comme ça. 45-year-old Rosalind Bede buys fish from middlemen who bring it from Chinese fishermen to the shore. She complains the fish is not always of good quality. She says she started buying fish from Chinese fishermen three years ago. She says she later discovered the Chinese fed the fish with nutrients that make them to become very big in a short period of time. She says fish sold by Chinese fishermen has lots of fat 
and is not nutritive when roasted. In a 2013 study, the environmental campaign group Greenpeace reported that the number of Chinese fishing boats operating in Africa soared from 13 in 1985 to 462 in 2013. The report said 114 cases of illegal fishing by such vessels in periods totaling eight years were discovered in the waters of Gambia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Mauritania, Senegal and Sierra Leone. It said the boats were operating without licenses or in prohibited areas. Amadi Diop, who is in charge of the program for aquaculture and fishing at the New Economic Partnership for African Development, NIPAD, says such illegal activity is making African fish farmers poorer and destroying the environment. Le poisson génère 24 milliards de dollars au niveau du continent. He says the $24 billion fish generates annually in the African continent is managed by people who are taking far more fish from African waters than can be replaced by those remaining and changing climate. He says those who are suffering most are small-scale, low-technology and low-capital fish farmers who contribute 46% to the total revenue generated against industrial maritime fishing that contribute 33%. Emil Esema, executive secretary of the Regional Commission for Fishing in the Gulf of Guinea, says the problem props up its ugly head because many African countries are not investing in fishing. He says the production is not enough, explaining why many countries still import fish from China. This sector he says the fishing sector is still neglected by many African states and that is why African heads of state are being encouraged by the African Union to dedicate resources to boost fish farming and aquaculture. He says fishing can generate riches, solve food and nutritional crises, provide jobs for millions of unemployed youths and developed nations. Nigerian-born Obina Anozi of Nepal agrees African states should dedicate more resources to fishing and aquaculture and improve the lives of millions of people involved in small-scale fishing activities. Over 90 million people are involved in what we call small-scale fisheries activities. That's where you have the rural dwellers. And then, apart from that, the product they produce contributes to a very large extent to the health development of uh, the, the rural dwellers. They are also asking China to eliminate destructive fishing practices by their citizens who are taking advantage of loopholes in African policies and the poverty situation of the African people to fish from their waters. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. 1742 Central African Time.
With temperatures expected to reach an excruciating 40 degrees Celsius or more in parts of South Africa this week, people have been advised to take precautions to prevent heat exhaustion. The South African Weather Service has issued a heat wave warning for areas including the Gauteng, Limbobo and Free State provinces. The country had no less than three heat waves in December 2015. More from Chitra Bodesang, who is the spokesperson for the private emergency medical company ER24. The heat wave is quite severe. We are seeing temperatures as high as 38 and higher than 40 degrees. For example, a person just now shared a photo of Freyhead mm. where they're showing 48 degrees. We have had a heat-related emergency calls, and this includes people who suffered from heat stroke and anything from dehydration to heat exhaustion. We have had people collapsing due to heat exposure, people suffering from heat exhaustion while cycling, as well as heat stroke while hiking. How long are these temperatures expected to last for, Chitra? According to weather services, the heat wave is expected to last in areas such as Gauteng, Limpopo, Free State for the rest of the day, Mm. with a bit of a break only from tomorrow. Now, what are some of the heat wave symptoms or some of the things that people uh, need to watch out for or monitor? There are a number of symptoms, um, you know, symptoms that a lot of us don't really take um, that seriously, but Mm. we actually should. You may feel very tired or feel a lack of energy or be thirsty as well as very hot. Mm. This could mean that you are dehydrated, meaning that the amount of water in the body lost is over the amount uh, being taken in. Mm. You could suffer from heat exhaustion. You could experience severe headache, weakness or disorientation, nausea or vomiting, muscle cramps as well as severe thirst. If symptoms persist, people should actually seek medical assistance immediately. You could also have a heat stroke, which could be life-threatening, and you could go into a coma or have seizures or go into cardiac arrest. Now, um, what are some of the best tips that people can use to deal with the heat wave? The first one would be to drink a lot of water to, mm. for people to stay hydrated. Try to stay out of direct sunlight. Seek shade or shelter if you are outside. Also, wear loose clothing, sunglasses to keep your eyes safe, as well as a wide-brimmed hat um, Mm. to avoid the sun getting on your face. You should also pay attention to babies and take care of the elderly, as well as keep children indoors. You Mm. can also use fans or air cons, and remember to stay in well-ventilated areas. That is Chitra Bordasang, who is the spokesperson of ER24 in South Africa, talking to Zikona Miso. 17.45 Central African Time is time for your economic news. Here's with Matabula. Good evening. Thanks, says Pumilele. South African Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis has confirmed that all outstanding issues threatening the renewal of agricultural trade benefits between South Africa and the U.S. have been resolved. Davis has told a news conference in Pretoria that uh, the salmonella issue has been concluded and the South African market is now open for 65,000 tons of U.S. poultry imports. Amina Akram reports has been a very difficult two days just trying to get the technical issues together. This is in regards to the pork and the importation of shoulder cut and obviously the main issue here was the importation of poultry which Rob Davis says everything has been finalized. The deal is very technical but so far we're going to be importing about 16,000 tons of poultry into the country.
Online movie and television series streaming service Netflix has officially gone live in 130 countries, including South Africa. Co-founder and chief executive officer of Netflix, Reed Hastings, made the announcement in Las Vegas in the U.S. Other additional countries to get the, the service are Russia, India and South Korea. China, though, is not on Netflix's new countries, while other countries are excluded from the launch are Crimea, North Korea and Syria because of U.S. government restrictions on American companies. Netflix has started its streaming service in the U.S. in 2007. Last year, the company expressed a goal to expand to an extra 150 countries across the globe. Meanwhile, Africa's largest listed company, Naspers, says it's not worried about Netflix's arrival here in South Africa. It says the market for video on demand is large enough to accommodate more players. Naspers launched its own Showmax video on demand unit in August last year, and that has been airing a mix of international and local content to build a base of subscribers. Netflix enters uh, the market uh, where not only Naspas has a foothold, but four other players, including mobile phone operator MTN, has launched video-on-demand services in the past year and a half. Steelmaker Axela Metal says the South African government is extending tariffs on imports. The South African unit of the world's largest steel company says it's in advanced talks with government on using local steel for public infrastructure projects and on pricing mechanism for axalamethal produced steel. It says the new measures have a reasonable uh, prospect of returning the company to profitability. Local producers had been struggling to compete with an influx of cheap supplies from China. Grand Ace SA is predicting a reduced maize crop of around 5 million tons this year due to the ongoing drought situation. That's approximately half of South Africa's maize requirement. The CEO of Grain SA, Yanidi Villiers, says the country will be forced to import millions of tons of maize, something that they had had to do in the early 90s. We can't estimate the crop at the moment, but I think what we've seen is that we are probably at half the hectares that we intended to plant has been planted. Yeah, I think our previously huge imports was in 1992, also with a big drought. And obviously, if you import, you know, this sort of magnitude of food at 16 rand a dollar, you know, it's going to hurt our, our balance of payments. And, and it is not coming at a good time for South Africa, given the state of our economy. And the Central Bank of Nigeria may revise its target for the Naira by about 20% to 240 to about 250 per U.S. dollar. This as oil continues its decline. International Monetary Fund Managing Director Christine Lagarde, who has visited the country, says Africa's biggest economy needs more flexibility in setting monetary policy so that it can use its foreign currency reserves to support the poor population. The Abuja-based Central Bank has held the Naira at 107 to 199 per dollar since March. And closing off this bulletin, we look at African currencies which are expected to come under pressure next week. This as emerging markets weaken due to China's economic woes, especially Zambia, which exports copper to the world's second largest economy. Other African currencies which are weaker as a dollar demand rises as trade picks up the following year 
following the year-end holidays. The Zambian kwacha will likely weaken due to a China market rout. The Kenyan shilling is expected to ease due to increased dollar demand by companies, while the Ugandan shilling is focused to trade within a weakening bias. And the Ghanaian city expected to weaken as business begin to buy dollars for their first quarter import, while the Nigerian Naira is seen weakening a little next week. And that's how it's looking. Thank you very much, Usani. Sam, for your sports news. Here's Mosibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. The who's who of the African football fraternity will on Thursday night descend on the International Conference Center in Abuja, Nigeria, where the 2015 Glow CAF Awards will take place. A major highlight for the evening will be the crowning of the African Footballer of the Year. Channel Africa's Tony Oban is in Abuja and found this report. The nominees for the African Player of the Year are Andrew Ayu, Ghana, and Swansea, and indeed, Pierre-Emerick Abiyam, that is from Gabon, and of course he plays his trade with Borussia Dortmund, and Yaya Toure, Côte d'Ivoire, Manchester City, who we have seen, you know, winning it back to back and back to back, and nominated for African Player of the Year, based in Africa, are Baghdad, Baghdad Bunja from Algeria, who plays his trade with the Toy de Sahel, and Mbwana Al-Samata from Tanzania, who plays for TP Mazembe, and of course Robert Kidiaba Mutabe, DR Congo, TP Mazembe. These are the people that almost everybody will be looking forward to. So on football news, Nigeria's under-23 coach Samson Siase says he is planning training camps and test matches in Europe as part of his team's preparations for the Rio Olympic Games in August. Nigeria will be in Rio as African under-23 champions after their last featured at the Olympics back in 2008. The former Super Eagles manager disclosed that the African champions will commence preparations for the Rio Olympics in the first week of February. Siase, who led the under-20 boys to the African title and the runner-up position at the FIFA Under-20 World Cup in the Netherlands back in 2005 stated that he intends to utilize all FIFA windows available to him and his assistants to see other players at close quarters. So on football news, Belgium start 2016 atop FIFA's national team rankings ahead of World Cup finalist Argentina, European champions Spain and world champions Germany after winning eight of their nine games last year. The top ten of FIFA's rankings released on Thursday remains unchanged since it was last dated on the 3rd of December because of the lack of international matches. Belgium may be a nation of 11.2 million people but is currently doted with a multi-talented national squad headed by Chelsea midfielder Eden Hazard and Manchester City record signing Kevin Dubrain. Now to cricket news, Cricket South Africa Chief Executive Officer Harun Logat has congratulated and thanked Hashim Amla for his services during his time as captain, taking over from Graham Smith 18 months ago. Amla has stepped down as team leader with immediate effect following the drawn England 
Patois of South Africa, second test in Cape Town on Wednesday. Logart went on to confirm that the world's number one batsman, A.B. de Villiers, will succeed Amla in the leadership role for the next two tests in Johannesburg and Centurion. Let me start by thanking Hashim for having captained the team for the past 12 to 18 months. He's done a good job as far as we are concerned. I've noted uh, some of the comments which I regard as particularly harsh and unfair. Uh, If I think of the time when I was convening the selection panel and Graeme Smith who ended up to become uh, the only test captain to lead for 100 or more test matches, uh, started with a very difficult period, faced similar challenges but ended up to be one of the best test captains uh, that clearly South Africa ever had if not the world had seen. Hashim uh, entered the role at the time when we lost some very, very capable players, stepped up, he was very willing to assume the leadership role. Uh, We're fortunate in that we've got uh, other players in the team as well uh, that supported us in leadership roles. So I want to take this opportunity, Hashim, to thank uh, most sincerely for having assisted in rebuilding a squad that had lost uh, senior players, uh, that had lost opening batsmen, uh, that had lost uh, some uh, opening bowlers through injury, and it was not an easy ride. The Zion Sports News and the Sour stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. All right, let's recap our stories. The UN investigates new allegations that its peacekeepers sexually abused four underage girls in Bangui. African countries agree to concentrate more budgets for development of fish farming to improve food security. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Lebo Munamoholo, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Here's Judith Puma Mangwane.
Simva pa 96.25 kHz imenendi 31